This week's psalm is Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in essence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the, uh, normally the minister of the Estates congregation that meets across the road. Uh, while many of our staff are on holidays, they've left me in charge. Um, if, um, if you're new, or even if you're not, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, also, you may have um, noticed uh, some of us up here slightly uncomfortable. We, we can normally see what's, what you can see up there down here, but... Um, the screens on summer holidays, so we just kind of have to hope that it's working. Well, last week, as I was preaching, I realised some of the kids were actually listening in um, as they were um, doing whatever they were doing and maybe recognised some words from the psalm. 
So I thought today I'd actually give them something to listen to. We're going to start with the story of the two builders that Jesus told in Matthew 7, and later on we'll connect it with Psalm 73. Uh, It'll just take a minute. Uh, You'll be able to see pictures on the screen, but if the kids do want to come forward, uh, you're welcome to do that. So here's the story. You might recognise it. There were two builders. Now, um, I think we've got to call one of them Bob. Um, I was going to call the other one Barbara, but I couldn't find the right photo, so maybe it'll have to be Brad or something. So um, Bob and and Brad each built a house. One of them built on the rock, not sure which side it is, and, um, and that was, he was called the wise builder, so let's say that's Bob. The other, Brad, built on the sand, and he was the foolish builder. Now one day, probably one night actually, a storm came, and we've had a few of those recently, haven't we? And uh, I guess followed by a flood. Actually, Jesus tells it much better. Jesus said, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the houses. And what happened? One of them fell flat. Actually, Jesus said it better again. It fell and great was the fall of it. That's what Jesus said. Which house was that? It was the one built on the sand, wasn't it? The house on the rock was safe. Jesus said it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus then said the person who listens to him, to Jesus, and does what he says is like which builder? Like the one who built on the rock. Well, that's the end of that story. Back to Psalm 73. Uh, There's a very simple outline. Three. I always have three points, uh, but this time there really are three points in the passage. Uh, Each of them begin with the word surely. So um, first the problem in verses 1 to 12, then a transition from verse 13, and then a solution um, in the solution from verse 18. Now I think you've got the words printed in the passage. The words of the passage printed in the um, leaflet you received when you came in, but they will also be on the screen. And sometimes there's a bit of an overlap between the verses and the sections. Well, we begin with the problem. Uh, The psalm begins, or it asks, an age-old question. Is God really good? And it's a question that kids ask along with everybody else. If God is God, if God is all-powerful, and we're assuming that he is, then why does he let all the bad things happen? Why did God let grandma die or dad get sick? Or why did God let my friends be mean to me? And then as we begin to listen and understand the news, there are plenty of opportunities to ask those questions, aren't there, every day? Why does God let wars happen or floods? Why did God let um, Russia invade Ukraine? Why did God let Hamas kidnap all those people? Or why doesn't God stop Israel from responding so violently? Even on our own doorstep in Australia, why did God let 
the white people treat the indigenous people so badly. And then as we start to think about this and maybe we draw some conclusions, we might start to ask the obvious question, is, is the first verse true? Is God really good? Is God surely good? Is he moral? And then if we're not asking about God, then we might start to ask ourselves from verse 13, what's the point of being good? Maybe it's like when a parent teaches their children to be good and they might say, well, use good language, don't swear. But everybody else does it, especially the popular people. Being good and not swearing doesn't help me make friends. The good kids are the unpopular kids at school. The most popular kids are sometimes the meanest kids. It might even be the bad kids have rich parents, they're spoiled brats. Why doesn't God make the bad kids poor? These are the kind of questions that the psalm is asking, maybe a more grown-up, more poetic, more biblical language. Verse 3, it says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it continues in verse 4. They, the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And on it goes for eight verses. And it might be the same as opening up some popular magazine or watching some show about famous people on TV. But what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we make of this? Well, the Psalms teach us by example to take our thoughts, our questions, good or bad, our grievances against God, the things we don't understand, our complaints, and to bring them to God in prayer. God can handle it. He's big enough. And the Psalms show us how to do it. The Psalms actually give us examples. We're going to, together, to pray some of this psalm now. I have a prayer that's written by a Palestinian Israeli. He understands injustice. His name is Reverend Yohanna. He teaches at the Nazareth Evangelical College. So um, I'm hoping that the prayer will come up and, um, and we can pray this together. Oh Lord, if you are good, then why don't you remove oppression? If you are powerful, why do you allow iniquity? The righteous are afflicted while the wicked are at peace. We endure toil and hardship, but the arrogant relax and their bodies are full of fat. We are clothed with humility but they put on oppression and iniquity. We become thin as we fast and are hungry, while they fill their cheeks and even their eyelids with fat. They attack heaven and earth with the thoughts of their hearts and the words of their mouths. Are we following you in vain? For our lives are full of worry and pain. Amen.
we'll continue that prayer at the end. Are we following you in vain? Are we trying to live a godly life following Jesus for nothing? We've now moved on to verse 13 and, and the second section, reflecting transition, reflecting on the problem. Is it okay to think like this, to ask these questions, to pray like this? Well, we've just seen the Bible does it for us. One writer says that doubting is something that only a believer can experience. Never thought of that. You can't doubt if you're not a believer. Normally a question is asked by somebody who is genuinely seeking an answer. So assuming the motives are pure, the question is genuine. And going forward to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are of all people to be most pitied. He was thinking this stuff through. If it's not true, then we're in trouble. Wondering what is the point of our attempts to live godly lives while we suffer, while we give up lots of stuff, is a very valid question that the Bible asks for us. Thinking things through, looking, observing the world around us, asking questions, even hard questions, is okay to do. There's plenty of that in the Bible. God can cope with our questions. I don't think we'll find a question that God doesn't have an answer to. So in verse 16, as he thinks hard, as he feels deeply, as he tries to understand, he goes into the sanctuary of God. Verse 17. Now we're in our third section. We don't know. He doesn't tell us what happened in the sanctuary. So here is my imagination. Right? Maybe think of St. Jude's during the week. No one here going into a deserted church, but you know, one like you see on TV with wooden pews, dark, sitting in a pew, praying quietly. Actually, somebody came in and did that this week. And then perhaps through the stained glass window comes, you know, a a ray of light and all of a sudden, you know, God speaks to him and he understands. Well, one problem with that is um, church church buildings weren't invented back then. Uh, The other thing is that we might have this understanding, maybe because generally not lots of people go to church, that church buildings are empty during the week. But actually... In those days and today, the sanctuary, or we're going to call it the church, is a place where God's people meet and worship together. I think the equivalent is not the empty church during the week, but actually coming to church on Sunday, meeting God's people, and together, all of us meeting with God and hearing from God, like we're doing right now. And as he did that, he learned about the final destiny of the ungodly. Now, how did he learn that? Was it in the sermon? Was it through an explanation of God's word in one of the songs that they sung? Maybe in a word of encouragement from a friend? The words of the liturgy? We don't know. See, I think it's our individualistic culture that makes us think that his sanctuary experience was an individualistic one. 
let's think about how coming together with God's people to God can bring this perspective and answers to our hard questions. First of all, meeting with God's people reminds us that we're not alone. We can get stuck in our own heads, can't we? We get to see that not everybody is worried about this problem in the same way that I am. It puts your doubts and struggles into a bigger perspective. Or maybe somebody else has been through the same struggle as you and they can tell you how they got through it. Meeting with God's people gives us a different peer group to interact with. You see, I get the feeling that he's hanging out with these people. They're his peers, the people he looked up to, the wicked. He watched them closely and he even started to use their arguments. Why bother with God? It doesn't pay. In vain have I kept my heart pure. When we're with God's people, we hear a different story. We see different truths from different perspectives. We see it's not quite true that the godly people are always unhappy. That's not what I've seen this morning. You find joyful and beautiful people among God's people. And their joy is often much deeper than the circumstances they're going through. We discover the lies that we've been fed, especially through the media. You see, the, the psalm writer, he was, he was too quick to accuse God. He, he made generalizations based on his own limited experience, just what he could see right there in front of him. But now he starts to see the flaws in his logic. Being with God's people broadens our experiences and widens our narrow, selfish thinking. It gets us out of the rut. Meeting with God's people also reminds us of when in time we are. Because, and and who we are as God's people. See, the people of God are not just the people in this building today. They're meeting all over Melbourne, all over the world. Some of them haven't met yet, different time zones. They're all, God's people are all of God's people through all of history. When we celebrate communion, we say these words, bring us with all your people into the joy of your eternal kingdom, there to feast at your table and join in your eternal praise. And then we say, worthy is the lamb, one of the songs that we will sing in heaven. Being with God's people reminds us of eternity. We practice together now what we'll be doing together for eternity. And then communion reminds us, it looks back to the death of Jesus. It reminds us that we're members together of the body of Christ. Not just me struggling by myself, not just us, but we're together with Jesus as our head. And of course, communion echoed and fulfilled the Passover when God rescued his people from Egypt. You see, when we get stuck in the here and now, problem I'm having today or this week or what I've seen on TV, 
We, we can feel, yes, the wicked are getting away with it. We don't see justice done. When we meet with God's people, we actually see a bigger story. And even when we might see systemic injustice for generations, coming into God's sanctuary with God's people reminds us that God rescued his people after they'd been in slavery for 400 years. That's a bigger time perspective. Remember Moses, in Deuteronomy, Moses kept saying you to these guys who weren't even there when God gave the Ten Commandments, reminding them that they were part of that. And so we too are part of that people of God, that history. And then God's people looked for thousands of years forward to the Messiah who came. We remember God himself came into this world and he himself suffered injustice. His people were under occupation. He was unjustly executed in order to provide justice for every person for all time. We are reminded as it says in verse 1, that surely God is good, even if it doesn't look like it right now. Well, let's go back to our two builders. The wise builder is the one who listens to the words of Jesus and does them, and the foolish builder doesn't. At At a really basic level, this psalm is talking about whether we'll listen to God's word, whether we'll get God's perspective and obey and live godly lives, even if it doesn't make sense. And the storm kind of reminded me of the, you know, the trials and temptations that come and how we stand up because we'll hear about what happens to the ungodly. At one point, many people left Jesus because they didn't like or understand what he was saying. And of course, the crowd yelled out, crucify him we were reminded last week Jesus said you gain your life by giving it away this is not the way of the ungodly they take the easier route also in Matthew 7 Jesus talks about the wide road that leads to destruction the ungodly build on the sand probably seems more attractive you know closer to the beach and easier, a bit hard to build on rock maybe. You see, the psalm writer had been listening to the wrong people. It wasn't, his trust was not in what he heard from God's mouth, but rather what he saw with his own eyes. Jesus would have called the ungodly, the foolish people who built their house on the sand The wide road with all the wicked walking on it seems very appealing. Many go that way. They look like they're having fun. It looks like it leads to prosperity. But actually, they have no idea that it's leading to destruction. And just in time, our psalm writer discovers that. Their final destiny in the second part of verse 17 That's why he needed to go in the sanctuary of God to hear God's words about their final destiny. It's really them, verse 18, who are on slippery ground. At the start, his own feet were falling, but that's because he was walking on their path, we might say. As he looks back 
he realizes he was thinking like they were thinking. He was in reality, as it says in verse 22, senseless and ignorant, a brute beast. It's the word he uses. Of course, at the time, it all seemed quite logical and sensible. He realizes the foolishness of his own thinking and his thinking begins to change. Now, this is a, you know, it, it seems like it was just like that, but it doesn't always happen that quickly, does it? And sometimes the solutions, we still will look out on the world as an unjust place and we might just hear, well, things will be better in heaven. So there's the answer. It's, it's so much easier to believe what we see with our eyes and what we can reason with our minds rather than looking with the eyes of faith. What we believe in our hearts to be true because we trust in the sovereign Lord. And you see, that's why it's so important that we don't go it alone because it's really, it can be really hard to get out of that kind of thinking. We need God's people to help us to believe. Together, we believe to help us to see, to encourage us, to give us good models, to help us to withstand doubt, to do it together and to get through suffering. The rest of the psalm is now between the writer and God. The experience in the sanctuary has given him new glasses, a new perspective, and it's caused him to feel closer to God. His feelings have changed, not just his thinking. In verse 23, I keep thinking it says, you are with me. But actually, it says, I am with you, God. I am continually with you. And then it switches. You hold me by your right hand. And we saw that last week in Psalm 121. Verse 24, you guide me by your counsel. We need God's counsel when our thinking isn't working. Verse 24, the second part, afterwards you will take me into glory. The wicked face their judgment in eternity, but the godly are taken into glory to be with God. When the house on the sand, when our sandcastles fall down and disappoint us, when the stock market crashes, when the bushfire comes and destroys our house or the floods, what, what, what do we have left? Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? When, when we get the God's perspective, the big perspective, we, we have nothing left but our God. And it's, it's not just, well, you know, he's the last one standing, so, you know, we kind of better take him. Verse 25, the second part, the earth has nothing I desire besides you. When our, when our heart, when our desires are rightly oriented, we don't want all that stuff. It's much less attractive. We only want God. Everything else fails in comparison to God. Anything that is pleasurable, anything that is good, anything that is beautiful was made by God. We learned that last week, didn't we? Everything was made by God, the mountains, the heaven and the earth. He is the source of all goodness and beauty, 
Why just admire the gift and not the giver? My heart and my flesh may fail, not just in the good times. We will suffer, we will die. But God is the strength of my heart. If our hearts go after the wrong things, they won't be strong hearts. They'll be weak hearts. God is my portion forever. A portion, maybe that's older language, is like a reward or what you might get from the inheritance. You're part of it or even just your wages. What are our wages? What do we get for living godly lives? We get God. And God is enough. Verse 28, it is good to be near God. Of course it is good. God is my refuge. When the storms of life hit, we will have questions. We will have doubts. But God is the one who controls the storms. Why would we not go to him for refuge? And finally, I couldn't resist the the missionary ending. I will tell of all your deeds. It's it's all so amazing. Why, Why wouldn't you want to tell someone? Why wouldn't you speak out? That is why we send missionaries. That is why we offer ourselves, our lives, our comfort to take this amazing news. All of God's deeds including the death of Jesus, to the ends of the earth, as well as to our friends and neighbours. Well, let's finish with some more of the prayer from Johanna, a Palestinian. I'll just read the prayer. Um, It won't be on the screen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, your goodness is not an abstract philosophy. It's a tangible reality that appeared through the shedding of blood. Partial knowledge is a misleading poison, but mature discernment advocates faith and fights gossip. I have seen the light of God. I recognize that you indeed are the Holy Father, full of goodness. You are the fountain of mercy, the mother who gave birth to compassion. You, our God, are beauty itself. Why am I focusing my eyes on the ugliness of oppression? You are eternal satisfaction. Why am I lusting for a dish that will only satisfy my soul's hunger for a moment, maybe a day? You are love that bleeds in order to save all humans. You, O God, are my portion. Therefore, I shall not seek someone else for the rest of my days. From birth to burial, you are good to all of your creatures. Even when I was still in the womb and after burial, when I will live forever and ever, you will always be good to me. I will seek your face today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.